Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylogs look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, September 5th, 2021. And my goodness, were there a lot of topics on the Sunday shows this week. There really was. And of course, our thoughts are with all of those who were impacted by the storm over the last week. Just in so many states. Yeah. Many, many people died. There's still hundreds of thousands of people without power. And flooded out and dealing with all of the impacts of that. And we're going to talk about that. In fact, that will be my main segment will be about climate. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Naomi, what is your quality or questionable this week? And I guess also let us know which shows you looked at. So I have a quality moment and it's from face the nation i also looked at this week which was hosted by george stephanopoulos face the nation was hosted by another cbs news correspondent they've kind of been going through different reporters at o'keefe major garrett before that was john dickerson today it was weijing jang she was a pretty prominent voice during the trump administration I, I really like her reporting, and it was interesting having a completely different fresh voice on the show. My quality moment, speaking of kind of storm-related issues, was from the interview with Governor Phil Murphy. He's the governor of New Jersey. It was about the storm, but it was also about climate change. It was about infrastructure, and I just thought it was a great question to bring all those topics together. You said after this storm that New Jersey needs to update its playbook for storm responses. Quote, as it relates to our infrastructure, our resiliency, our whole mindset, the playbook that we use, we have got to leap forward and get out ahead of this. What was it about this storm that led you to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we have been spending uh, all of our, our, our hours thinking about, and we will be doing that, I suspect, for many years, if not decades to come. We screamed uh, loud and clear tornado warnings, uh, flood warnings, flash flood warnings. We begged people to get off the road, uh, and still you've got 27 losses of life and enormous destruction. We had rain in, in many communities in two or three hours that were equivalent uh, to what they normally get in a month or two. And, 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 and this, sadly, we think is part of, the, part of what we're going to be facing, more frequency and more intensity. So I mean that in terms of the playbook in every respect. Um, we need a much more resilient infrastructure. That infrastructure bill that's being <clears throat> debated in Congress uh, would have a huge positive impact on states like New Jersey. We're the most densely populated state in America. Uh, a location second to none, but we've got infrastructure that was built for a different reality. Uh, and so that's the big piece of this. Uh, and we wanna make sure that folks, when they hear these warnings, uh, bless their souls, that they take them as seriously as we mean them. 
and God willing, uh, we'll, we'll be able to, to sharpen that as well going forward. The follow-up question to this response from Governor Murphy kind of emphasized how crucial the infrastructure plan is to being able to implement a robust modern playbook for natural disasters. Yeah, you know, it really makes me think that this is likely, you know, there's all this conversation about infrastructure. It's something that's well overdue. But all of these events make me feel like infrastructure is going to be something we're going to be hearing back, hearing about again in, you know, in five years and then 10 years and then 15 years. Like it's something we are going to have to keep doing in this country to prepare for these types of events. Absolutely. Brendan, what's your quality or questionable moment? Well, and I do want to say there will also be more discussion I will be having, as I mentioned, about right. climate and in particular about people's reactions and what both government officials and residents of these states can do to better heed these sorts of warnings. So for me, I had a an interesting situation here. It was a quality questionable related to the interview on State of the Union that Dana Bash did with White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. And I should say I looked at State of the Union, I looked at Fox News Sunday, and I looked at Meet the Press. So there's some questionable things here I want to point out from both Ron Klain and Dana Bash in this interview. And I was trying to get a sense of what my frustration was, because there were two moments where Dana Bash does not have strong follow-ups to something Ron Klain says. And I feel like the issue is just screaming, or I was maybe screaming for her to have a better follow-up, or to have a follow-up. But then earlier in the interview, she does have a follow-up, and in fact, she goes on and on following up about the booster shot discussion. So it's not an issue where she's not following up. And I was just trying to understand, like, Why was it that she followed up so much on one issue and then didn't on two others? It was a wide-ranging conversation. So why were the follow-ups so lacking later on? So I do have a theory for why that is, but why don't we just present to you a little bit of what we're talking about. So at the beginning of the conversation, Dana Bash begins by talking to White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain about the boosters issue. This booster shot issue is one where a lot of people heard from the news and from the White House, in fact, that there were going to be booster shots available to people who got their COVID vaccines because the vaccines, their immunity have waned over time and booster shots are a thing in many vaccines and are likely going to be useful here and that people would be able to start getting them on September 20th. Well, we're getting close to September 20th, but we're waiting to see what's going on with the FDA, with the CDC. Dana Bash kept pushing again and again to find out what the story is from Ron Klain. Here is the conclusion of that back and forth. So I want to move on. I just want to clarify. It it sounds like what you're saying is it is possible that September 20th, that week will come and the boosters might not be ready to be approved. Dana, let's not play games about this. We, yeah, yeah. so what I'm saying is (laughs) we will go when the FDA and the CDC say go. I think the reports out of both agencies are that uh, at least some of the boosters for some people will be ready that week. But we are going to go whenever they say go. Got it. Okay. See, I heard Klein was a little annoyed there because it did seem like he had answered the question to me several times, at least on that issue. 
and made the point being that the reason they announced on September 20th was they wanted the whole country to be ready. They wanted their administration to be ready so that the minute they get the yes from the FDA and the CDC, people can start getting the vaccine, unlike in December when things were approved, but it took weeks for the vaccines to really start rolling out back in December under the Trump administration. So that was his distinction there. But Bash pushed him, pushed him, pushed him, tried to get the story on that issue. But then it came to the issue of Afghanistan. In this, Dana Bash is talking about SIVs. These are the individuals who helped as translators and assisted the troops in Afghanistan in their missions. And they, a lot of them were left behind when the U.S. completed the evacuation of Afghanistan and the drawdown of military troops last week. And now the, the SIVs are left there facing the Taliban. And on those uh, so-called FI, SIVs, rather, uh, the question is whether or not uh, you're hearing the what we believe are credible reports about the Taliban systematically hunting them down, many of them, and killing them. Have you, have uh, you Dan, heard about that, Dan, and what is the administration doing about it? Dana, we, uh, there are all kinds of reports coming in. We're in close communication with our sources and our contacts in Afghanistan to try to uh, get those SIVs out, to get them out safely. I know that some are coming out by land. Uh, we are, again, continuing to work uh, on efforts to get them out by air as well. Uh, we're going to continue to move those SIVs out of the country. What I will say is, uh, as everyone knows, we launched a historic airlift that brought 124,000 people out of Afghanistan, American citizens, uh, legal permanent residents of this country, uh, residents of other countries, and a lot of uh, Afghan nationals. And we are going to get those people, we've gotten those people to safety. We're ultimately going to resettle them in Europe and the United States. Uh, and, uh, and that's a big part of rescuing that SIV population. I want to ask about infrastructure. So just having heard that for the first time, Naomi, does that sound like a sufficient answer to the question? Not really. Right. It seems pretty terse. <laughs> yeah, it's like Bash says... There are reports these people are being systematically hunted down and killed. And he says, well, there's all sorts of reports going on. Our focus is getting people out. And uh, I just want to reiterate that we got a lot of people out already. And that's what we're focused on. It's very dismissive of an extremely dire situation going on. One that I do want to point out was highlighted in pretty direct detail on Fox News Sunday in the interview with one of the Republican Intelligence Committee members. So I was just surprised that Bash did not really press him to A, confirm or deny whether those reports are accurate, and B, explain in greater detail what's being done to get these people out of a literally life and death situation. And later in the interview, she speaks with Ron Klain about the issue of abortion, asks what the government is doing right now, the federal government can even do to protect the rights of women in Texas against this pretty obviously unconstitutional law, although it was not stopped by the Supreme Court. And Ron Klain says, oh, yeah, Justice Department lawyers are looking at it. HHS is looking at it. We have a gender policy council, et cetera, et cetera. Bash asks if anything can be done at the federal level, and Klain says, we're going to find out. We're working really hard. I think there is a way, yes. And that's the end of the conversation. But there's a huge missed opportunity here because there is growing pressure from the Democratic Party for 
the White House and Congress to expand the Supreme Court, to reform the Supreme Court, to deal with these shadow docket issues where the Supreme Court basically puts out opinions without actually trying a case and can even potentially overturn president with these sorts of things, as it seems like they did with Roe v. Wade here, as some are, some are saying. So there's been a lot of pressure for Supreme Court reform. And in fact, the Biden administration itself has a commission right now looking at issues of Supreme Court reform. So it might be reasonable to ask Ron Klain about his own administration's commission on this issue. But no, there is a complete missed question on that. So all that said, I was just wondering, like, why was she so good at follow-up early and then not later? I don't think it was necessarily an issue of time. My sense is that the whole focus of this interview was hitting these touchstones, these points that are hot topics in the news. And she is asking what Ron Klain and the Biden administration are doing about these issues. But it seems like to her, any answer is almost sufficient. Like if he says they're doing something, she's ready to move on. And she's not really pressing him to make sure that he's oper- they're actually operationalizing that into something that's actually going to work or they're choosing an action that's actually going to do something or be effective or meet the real challenge, it seems like almost any answer is sufficient. And I think that's the big difference sometimes between a really good interview and an interview that sounds okay, but doesn't really get to the main issues and doesn't press hard enough, especially when you're talking to the administration. These should be the toughest, toughest interviews. And just saying that the administration is doing something is does not mean that that is truly sufficient, right? You got to press, you got to press. Are they doing the right thing? Are they doing it fast enough? Are they doing it most effectively? Are they doing it to please, you know, this constituency versus that constituency? Are they addressing all of the issues that might be affecting American citizens on this? Like, we cannot accept just any answer as a sufficient answer from an administration official, especially the chief of staff. Right, you- Ron Klain doesn't even go on the shows that often. Exactly. So to kind of squander this opportunity for really robust conversations is kind of just such a shame. Yeah. And especially because not only is Ron Klain really high up in the organization, because he's high up, it means that he can actually say things that other people can't. Exactly. He would have more authority to say things. Way more authority to say things and way more knowledge of what's going on. You know, like he is not, even if he flubs on the show, he's not going to be like excoriated by the communications team because he oversees that communications team. You know, like he is the closest thing to talking to Biden that you are going to get. Absolutely. So don't miss the opportunity to press them to provide real answers that show that they're actually doing stuff. All right. That was quite a long quality questionable, but State of the Union doesn't figure into any of my other segment. So I felt like it was important to at least air that. Naomi, why don't you tell me what your major segment of discussion is today? You mentioned, Brendan, the abortion decision or the decision by the Supreme Court not to review the Texas law and allow the Texas law to go into effect, which essentially bans abortions in the state of Texas after six weeks. Before many women even know they're pregnant. Yeah, before before women know they're pregnant. I mean, it. 
there's so many things that are wrong. But I wanted to talk about this because at least in the two shows that I looked at, Brendan, I found this conversation to be so weak and pathetically, it was just lazy, just plain and simple. Like the, the shows felt like they had to cover it, but there was literally zero meaningful analysis of the Texas and abortion law or really describing how and why it was made. There was no discussion about the rise of anti-choice state legislation across the country. There was nothing about the effect that this law has on women and birthing people today. There was nothing that looked about kind of the scathing descent of Sonia Sotomayor and just no reproductive justice experts whatsoever. Like there were Democrats on the show talking about this, but I felt like they didn't even try to have someone meaningfully talk about this, whether it was one of their own reporters or someone who like lives and breathes this work. Right. Like no experts, period. Zero. Zero. Nowhere. So anyway, this whole conversation got me so frustrated because it's not like it happened Saturday night. This happened several days ago and it's been all over Twitter, all over the news. Like you could have made this a meaningful segment and the shows decided not to. The two that you covered, you're saying? Yes, the two that I looked at. So I wanted to start with the interview with Senator Bill Cassidy on this week because neither Senator Cassidy, who is an actual doctor, neither Senator Cassidy or George Stephanopoulos centers or starts the conversation by focusing on the people who are affected by this law, which just maintains the conversation in like a very hypothetical lens, which is exactly what Cassidy wants. And Cassidy, as you will quickly notice, is a Republican senator from the state of Louisiana. Um, I am pro-life. But let's be clear, George. The ruling on SCOTUS was that the plaintiffs did not have standing. It had nothing to do with the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade. It was only on if the plaintiffs had standing. People are using it to gin up their base to distract from disastrous policies in Afghanistan, maybe for fundraising appeals. I wish we'd focus on issues as opposed to as opposed to theater. It was about if they had standing, nothing to do with constitutionality. I think we should move on to other issues. Well, except that. So the law is being enacted right now. Let's talk about the underlying law, which is talk about the substance of the underlying law. It gives private citizens the right to enforce this law. It actually tasks private citizens with enforcing this law. And the Wall Street Journal uh, came out against that this week. They called it, said an editorial calling it the Texas abortion law blunder, saying the law sets an awful precedent that conservatives should hate. Could California allow private citizens to sue individuals for hate speech or New York deputize private lawsuits against gun owners? So setting aside the standing issue, what do you think of the underlying substance of the law? I think the Supreme Court will swat it away once it comes to them in an appropriate manner. Um, If it is as terrible as people say it is, it'll be destroyed by the Supreme Court. But to act like this is an assault upon Roe v. Wade is, again, something the president's doing, I think, to distract from his other issues. Now, President Biden didn't enact this law, so I don't understand Senator Cassidy's assertion that this is that this is Joe Biden's doing like Joe Biden's magic to distract from Afghanistan. Like that's such a load of crap. It is just insulting. But the other part is that like Cassidy, like 
as a doctor, like never really cares about patients or people who are impacted by this law in any way. He in his answer, in his answer and his responses, he just makes it seem as it's a very hypothetical situation. It'll come back to the Supreme Court. Like, I don't want to talk about this. Well, speaking of that on Meet the Press, literally Chuck Todd said because he had Claire McCaskill and Barbara Comstock on talking about it. And he mentioned, you know, they couldn't find any sitting Republicans in Congress who were willing to talk about the topic. They don't want to talk about it. Yeah, They're afraid and, of it. And later on the panel, Kristen Soltis Anderson talks about this as well, that Republicans are don't want to talk about this also because of the way the law is structured around neighbor versus neighbor. And that it doesn't have exceptions for rape or incest or the life of the mother. Just no exceptions whatsoever. And... Every other, every sitting Republican president has at least believed in that. Yeah, it's so disgusting. Well, and I, one thing that stood out to me in George's question is that he describes the law, a law that was made to eliminate a woman's right to choose as, quote, it gives private citizens the right to enforce this law, end quote. That is how he describes it. He says it gives private citizens the right. This isn't about giving people rights. The law is about removing rights and from And enforcement people. is... Is a part of it. Well, no, enforcement is deputized to private citizens, right? Right. That right. It's giving people fewer rights and also, like, more power to go after your neighbors. Yes. But just... For him to, dis- like, his main description of the law is that it gives people rights. That's because George Stephanopoulos doesn't want to acknowledge this is women, or this is abortion, or this is their bodies, or that yeah. these are fetuses. Like, none of these men can actually say these freaking words. Yeah. That's why. Okay. So, I wanted to compare this. <laughs> I'm trying. I have so much to say. I need to, like, <laughs> like, it's like marathoning my rage. So... <laughs> I'm sure you will make it through. I know. I believe I will in your power rage. through. So I wanted to compare this crap question and crap answer from George Stephanopoulos and Senator Cassidy to Face the Nation, where Weijin Jang interviews Representative Veronica Escobar. She's a Democratic congresswoman from the state of Texas. And listen to the first question that she is asked and how very different it is from what we just heard from George. Good morning, Weijian. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. You call the new law one of the most draconian state laws to date. Since it took effect, I wonder, have you heard from constituents and healthcare providers about any immediate impact? I have, Weijia. People are shocked, horrified, outraged. We knew it was coming down the pike because it was debated in our state legislature, but uh, actually having it become law on September 1st has been pretty horrifying because of two really um, uh, awful consequences. The first is the fact that neighbors and friends and family uh, members are, are being incentivized to be bounty hunters. Uh, it's incredible that we live in a state that is willing to incentivize that. But there are also other real life consequences that are happening right now, deadly consequences. There are folks who want to believe that you can eliminate abortion. But what what this law and other laws like it will do is simply make it deadlier, more dangerous. Women are going to take their health into their own hands. It will impact young women, poor women and women of color. Um, and I am really afraid of the lives that will be lost as a result. Wow. 
So night and day completely difference. night and day difference. And it doesn't take like it doesn't take a lot to say what's the impact of this law right now. Right. It's like the correspondent, the reporter didn't have to suddenly research a ton of stuff like it, it, it's not that much work to pay attention as to who or what or how you're centering the topic of conversation. It's just so enraging. Unbelievable. So so that's kind of a, a better way uh, to start this conversation. There was another moment in the interview with Representative Escobar that I wanted to look at. And it's the question that Ouija makes about the federal response. And after that, we'll look at a response from an administration officials. First clip here is from the interview with Veronica Escobar. And to help handle those immediate consequences and what you're talking about, women seeking care, is there anything you're asking from the Biden administration that they can provide, whether that's transportation to another state or funds for a trip like that? What are you asking from the president? Well, I'm grateful that the president wants to fight for women's health care and wants to protect women from a state and, frankly, a party that is not pro-life, um, but is instead pro-birth, willing to put women's lives on the line. So the, the Biden administration is looking at a whole-of-government approach, um, asking its agencies to take action. So I'm grateful for that. But Congress needs to act as well. We are going to bring to the floor the Women's Health Protection Act, which will put into law the protections that women uh, need and require uh, that, that we've had for decades under Roe v. Wade. OK, this seems like a safe enough answer. Biden is looking into it. The agencies under his direction are looking into it. And Congress is going to pass a bill codifying Roe v. Wade, which will be which will move to nowhere in the Senate in its current state without with the filibuster in place like it's fine right like this is a very politically astute response from congresswoman escobar take a listen to this response from cedric richmond white house senior advisor on this week also talking about the texas bill now texas law and what the white house is doing let's talk about the texas abortion ban that passed this week the president promised a whole of government response to this bill what can the administration do to prevent the law from being carried out i know he's tasked the justice department to look at that he's tasked the justice department to look at uh the actual law and the options that we have there he's tasked hhs to look at other ways to make sure that women still have the right to choose and the ability to terminate a pregnancy or have an abortion if that's the hard decision that they choose. And then he's taxed the Gender Policy Council to also look at those. So we're going to, as an administration, look at ways to counter this law in Texas, which the president uh, issued a statement uh, and was very clear uh, about the damage that that decision has done. And we're going to do everything we can to try to uh, remedy uh, that situation for people in Texas. It, it is just a cruel and uh, destructive law on the rights of women. Now, fine, whatever. They're saying they're looking into it. The fact that there is zero response ready is already like an effing joke by this administration. The This law was passed 
in Texas in May. Yeah. So it's not like it's any surprise that it's suddenly upon us on September 1st. Mississippi has its own bill in front of the Supreme Court right now that will eliminate abortions after the 15th week. So the fact that they're like stumbling about trying to figure out like what agency can do what and you know what they're going to do is just maddening and to think that that's okay or that that suffice and that like abortion activists should be grateful for that is so insulting and like again i understand like representative escobar it's like very politically astute and like cedric richmond's just doing his job and but these reporters are acting like oh yeah okay you're on it you're on it that's like enough right it's like again being okay with any answer with like a zero lazy ass answer like oh my god or or response to a situation right (gasps) i it's just this is not enough it's not enough. And you should be able to say, this is lazy trash. Like, mm-hmm. wh- <laughs> why should people believe that you have their back? Or or at the very least, if you're not going to say that's lazy trash, you could say, as you said, Naomi, well, why was the White House surprised and unprepared for something that has been coming down the pike for four months? Have you been working on this in four months? When did they begin that? Who work? are the leads? Like, who yeah. in the administration is working on this? Is there like, a timeline for it to be completed? Yeah. Like, when can we expect an update on this answer? Like, right. anything other than, like, we're trying. We promise. Mm. Oh, my God. Okay. And so the, the last couple things I wanted to share was from the panel on this week, which, okay, fine. There were Democrats on the panel of this week technically so heidi heitkamp was on she's the former senator from north dakota south dakota one of the dakotas and then also donna brazil was on as well but neither one of them i felt like were the strong counter voices to what we heard from the republican side take a listen to a couple of clips the first clip is from kristen soltis anderson she's a republican pollster and the second one from Chris Christie, who apparently those two just know everything about abortion. Now, it's true that nationally, only about 38% of Americans support an abortion ban that starts at the heartbeat. And so that's why it's incumbent upon pro-life activists, who I think a lot of the folks in the Texas legislature are aware that this is not necessarily the most popular policy, but they believe that that little person that's the size of a blueberry that has a heartbeat Forget the politics. That's what they believe. But we do live in a democracy. You have to win hearts and minds. And so what I think the pro-life community needs to realize is you have to win hearts and minds of voters, not by passing laws that are going to pit neighbors versus neighbors. But instead, we've had an unbelievable decline in the abortion rate in this country over the last few decades. And it's not a result of restrictions. It's a result of a decline in demand. Let's create a country where every time someone sees that little blueberry on an ultrasound, they're excited because it's the beginning of an exciting new chapter. But you're going to allow... Chris, what about that argument? It was the Wall Street Journal was making a similar argument. The precedent this sets to have private individuals doing this. Look, again, George, I think it's you're you're, because people aren't following the law and doing things in a cogent way. You get laws like this who are trying to jerry rig around Roe versus Wade, which, in my view, as not only as someone who's pro-life, but also as someone um, who's a lawyer. But can you support a law like that? So what what I support is an honest conversation (laughs) about abortion in this country. And, And the fact is the much more significant case quite frankly, in this Texas case, is the Mississippi case. Mississippi one. Because the Mississippi case is following the law the way it's supposed to go, and it's going to put a 15-week ban 
in front of the Supreme Court. And again, remember how Roe versus Wade was decided. Out of nowhere, the United States Supreme Court decides that first trimester is not to be protected and they're moving forward. Science has changed so much since then. And what Kristen's talking about, I, I would argue, too, that one of the reasons why you're seeing a decline in abortion is because of the increase in science and how much more people know about viability. And when they know that, they're much more appalled by the act of abortion than they were back in 1973. So, like I said, High Camp, Senator High Camp and Brazil were on, but I found their defense of abortion Weak, just weak. And these these comments from Kristen Soltis Anderson and Chris Christie are so dumb. They are so stupid because they're here trying to say that, like, yes, in the last 20 years, there's been like a significant decline of abortions. That is true. It, But what it has to do is because we have more contraceptives. We have long acting contraceptives like an IUD or the next one, which goes in your arm or a slew of long-term reversible contraceptives. There's also, because of Obamacare, birth control is now free if you're insured. And preventative health care is no longer a cost to women when they seek it when they're insured. There's a range of reasons why birth control is more accessible than it was 25 years ago. Gee, that might be a reason why there's fewer unwanted pregnancies. Not to mention comprehensive sex ed which like the range of comprehensive sex ed in this country is a joke but that that is a whole other factor too like making sure people know about their bodies and how to stay safe like those are the factors that are changing the rates of abortion in this country not viability right and what is very convenient to not talk about here is the personal and financial trauma of having extremely premature babies it's very convenient not to talk about that right yeah and also these are often in states where for the last 10 years have not wanted to expand medicaid where those people would be like severely underinsured to be able to care for those very expensive premature babies right well there is just a long running history of the Republicans and people on the right who describe themselves as pro-life trying to enact these sorts of laws, but not supporting the things you just described that have been proven to reduce women's unwanted pregnancies, right? Yeah. Or, or things, as you mentioned, that support a woman who has a child early and has to deal with that. Right. And it's just like the fact that, I mean, Heidi Kleinkamp's goes on to say like this issue this decision's really bad and it's only going to polarize this topic even more and polarize like families more but like there was nothing about like the science and the advancements of women's health care and the choice and the, and the work of people who like live and breathe this work and that was the part that was so frustrating like Kristen Soltis Anderson and Chris Christie are not talking like in like quote-unquote crazy pro-lifer speech and it's really crazy anti-choice people right where it's just like they don't want women to have access to abortions like some of that rhetoric is so inflammatory that only a few people are hearing or, or only certain people are hearing it right but what drives me crazy about these comments from Kristen Soldis Anderson and Chris Christie and the facilitation of George Stephanopoulos to begin with across this panel is it makes it seem as if this is intelligent debate and it's not this is 
These comments make no sense. If you work in healthcare, if you work in women's rights, if you work in women's healthcare issues, if you talk to any abortion activists, like these comments literally don't make sense. But either a producer didn't do any research or George doesn't care. And so there's like zero rigor to this conversation. Well, it sounds like George is just sitting with his law books reading like, oh, well, this is a, an interesting issue in the law. And let's talk about how they're, they're, you know, operationalizing this through, you know, private individuals. And that's very interesting. Let's talk about that. By the way, the other thing that drives me crazy about this is Chris Christie and his statement where he says, listen, what I support is an honest oh conversation about abortion in this country. And the fact is that I'm going to now change the subject to something else. It's like, stop. Are you kidding me with this doublespeak garbage? Let's have an honest conversation by changing the subject because he doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'd love to have an honest conversation with you about that. Let's and now I'm going to change the subject. <laughs> it's like gaslighting 101. Yeah. Holy cow. But he doesn't want to talk about it either, right? He, he tries to talk, pivot and talk about another law right. that he does support. So truly maddening. It was very calm day, me looking at the shows. Very chill. Brendan. Wow. I don't know where you're taking us. I, I, I'm assuming it's a, a calmer place, but I don't know. Well, we're talking about climate <laughs> and storms. So it is not calm weather <laughs> moving forwards here. But okay, let's go. Let's get into this. For years, people have complained that the Sunday shows have not covered the climate change issue very well. And even to this day, they don't always have on a lot of experts. They often have on politicians. For too long, they treated it as a debate. What Republicans say versus what Democrats say, what climate scientists say versus climate deniers say. They're well beyond this argument phase of the conversation. But they're still not super great about having experts on to deal with this crisis as they are with having experts on to deal with the COVID crisis to this day. But today there was a quite a robust conversation or at the very least an acknowledgement of the climate component in the recent natural disasters related to the storm in particular that hit in the form of Hurricane Ida and the flooding that hit the Northeast and other places in the country. Now, it's a good thing that there is conversation about this and broader discussion, but I am sure that a lot of people who have been pressing for this for well over a decade, in some cases two to three decades, are frustrated that the media, and particularly policymakers, aren't talking about it until it's literally happening. Literally, we are having climate disasters way too frequently. And it's like, well, maybe if we had had conversations about this earlier, policies may have been enacted to help curb this. But anyway, let's get into it. Fox News Sunday is the one I want to talk about the most because they had a segment at the top of the show focused on this issue and focused on climate in particular. Take a listen. A week after Hurricane Ida made landfall in Louisiana, hundreds of thousands of people are still without power in dangerously hot 100 degree weather. It'll be a month before power is fully restored after the Category 4 storm's 150 mile per hour winds blacked out all of New Orleans while demolishing whole communities. Utter devastation, like a bomb went off. 
Ida brought record-breaking rainfall to the Northeast. New York City issued its first flash flood emergency in its history as water inundated subway stations and submerged Westchester County in 14 feet of water. In New Jersey, roadways turned to rivers, forcing hundreds of water rescues as walls of water demolished homes and businesses. People have been warning for decades that the effect of climate change and what it would do to our communities, it's happening right now. It is not a future threat. This, as wildfires in California, have burned three times as much land compared to the same time last year, fueled by severe drought. Nearly one in three Americans reportedly lives in a county that has experienced a weather disaster over the last three months. So a really wide-ranging piece there. I just want to mention the lady who said that people have been warning for decades the effect of climate change, what it would do to communities, and that it's happening now. That was current governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. I should say new governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Sounds good. Yeah. But I, yeah, we, I, we kind of I mean, <laughs> the new governor, not all the, the fact that there's change. a new governor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was impressed with this, and my God, that stat: nearly one in three Americans live in a county that's experienced a weather disaster over the last three months. Like that is not a long period of time. Uh, similarly, on Meet the Press, there was a data download talking about how climate issues are going to affect more and more Americans as more and more Americans move to areas that are more at risk of climate disaster. Obviously, the fastest growing cities in America, look at them. They're in the Southwest and in the West, and you already can see where we're headed. The number one thing that brings up is the issue of water and drought issues, as you can see here. And then, of course, where are you gonna have more people in line for potentially devastating hurricanes? Those fast growing areas in Texas and the Gulf Coast mean more people in line for that. The bottom line is this, our population shifts in this country are going to places where we have a lot of climate-related problems. So those are the standing pieces that these shows did, or bits of them at least. But now I want to dig deeper into what was the top interview on Fox News Sunday. This was the leading interview, and that was with FEMA Administrator, Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator, Deanne Criswell. I want to say a few things about this interview. The main thing is I am both frustrated by Chris Wallace's... I have so many emotions here. I love that Chris Wallace made this the top interview, or at least the top topic on on his show. I think that's great. I'm so happy to see some of the questions Chris Wallace was asking. These are really important questions, and they are conversations that we should be having, absolutely, on all these Sunday shows. But at the same time... I'm extremely frustrated that Chris Wallace did not necessarily find the best person to answer these questions. And I feel a little bad for Chris Wallace because the person that he did find, even though she was adjacent to maybe being able to answer some of these questions, was not giving him anything, like very little. So I feel a lot here. And maybe you will too. And maybe we'll get to some answers. So let's begin the way Chris Wallace began when he asked about this most recent storm and its effects on New York. You know, when a massive hurricane, you say a Category 4, hits the coast, we expect there to be severe damage. I think the surprise is that days later and more than a 1,000 miles away that Ida did such devastation in in the Northeast, including New York City. And here is that city's mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, talking about that. Take a look. 
I think we now understand that every attempt at projection, bluntly, is failing us. Let's be clear. We're getting from the very best experts projections that then are made a mockery of in a matter of minutes. Question, why is that? Why are the projections so off? You know, we are definitely beginning to see the impacts of climate change. This storm in particular, it intensified so rapidly in the Atlantic or in the Gulf that uh, emergency managers, emergency responders had even a shorter time to warn the public and help get them out of harm's way. And we're also seeing as this storm and some of the other um, weather events that we've seen, they're just intensifying very rapidly and dropping a large amount of rain and tornadoes. This is the, the crisis of our generation. There's just so many things wrong with what everyone just heard there. It is hard to point out how many things there are. And also because I have other clips I want to get to. But let me just quickly go through them. First of all, this is an important question, at least at the start, because Chris Wallace hits the premise that I think a lot of people deal, you know, struggled with over the last week, which is hurricanes are supposed to hit people on the coast, people in Florida and in the Gulf Coast and, you know, a little ways up the coast. Georgia, South Carolina, they're supposed to be the ones who are at risk of hurricanes. And should be ready. They should be ready. They should know what to do. They should evacuate when they have to. But me, I live in New York City, or I live in D.C., or I live wherever. And I don't have to deal with that. I choose not to deal with that, right? But these hurricanes are becoming, or seeming to be becoming dangerous in other places in the country. So what the hell is going on? Well, the reality is, this is really an important conversation to have, because the most dangerous thing in hurricanes, you know, you look at the hurricanes and their, um, their, their scale, category one, two, three, four, five. The deciding factor on that scale is wind. It's wind speed. But the reality is that the most dangerous thing in a hurricane is not the wind. It is the water. It is the, both the, the storm surge that, that the wind ends up pushing up. So there is some effective wind there, but also just the amount of water that is dumped down on people and the huge amounts of water that people are seeing from these storms in places that aren't the coast makes sense because the storm is carrying a lot of water and it takes a long time for all that to drop. I found a, an old article from 2019 where uh, there was a director of NOAA's National Weather Service, and this is uh, the, uh, Ken Graham. He said, quote, when you close your eyes and we ask, what do you see when you think of a hurricane? Most people say the wind, but water is what kills. 90% of hurricane-related deaths are water-related, and 50% of those are related to storm surge. And the crazy thing is that the most powerful storm surges are seen not on the coast, but 100 miles inland, which is crazy, but it's often rivers that are affected by these storm surges. So we need to rethink the way we think about these storms from the get-go. The other problem here, Bill de Blasio in that clip, he's trying to point the finger at the projections, at the meteorologists. But really what happened in New York was very much a problem with management and not a problem with projections. One day ahead of time, one day in advance, there were extreme weather event forecasts that were projecting extreme rain for New York City. 
And New York City, it was known to have potential major flash flood risks. And it shouldn't be surprising why it has major flash flood risks. One of the biggest reasons why flash floods happen is when you have soil that is impermeable. It means the water can't be absorbed into the soil fast enough. And guess what's impermeable? Concrete. Guess what New York City is filled with? Concrete. Shouldn't be surprising. There is a great article in the New York Times that goes into all this and all the failures of New York City itself and reiterating some of the projections. Oh, finally, Criswell, her answer didn't really touch on any of those issues. So that was kind of disappointing. But let's move on to another question. Now, this is a question that Chris Wallace should absolutely be graded down for because he knows literally in his own question that it's not an appropriate question for the person he's talking to. I I know that you're not a climate scientist, but... But no, that's where the question should end. (laughs) Don't continue the question there. Find a climate scientist and ask it to the climate scientist. Because asking it to someone who's not a climate scientist is inviting the wrong answer. Right. You know? Exactly. But anyway, let's hear the question. I I know that you're not a climate scientist, but let me ask you a question a lot of people ask. How can climate change do all of these things, be responsible for extreme heat and drought, but also record cold, flooding, uh, as I say, and and wildfires. How could it be responsible for all of those, sometimes what would seem to be directly contradictory weather effects? You know, I don't know how climate impacts it specifically. What I do know is that we are seeing more frequent storms, more intense storms that are intensifying more rapidly. We have to start planning for what the future might hold and do modeling that's going to help us predict what these future risks are going to be. So I do think that Administrator Criswell does as good a job as she can here by saying, look, I don't know really the answer that you're looking for because I am not a climate scientist, but I can tell you what I do know, which is that we have more frequent storms and they're more intense. So good for her for doing the best she can with this. And again, this is a good question for Chris Wallace to ask. He's just asking the wrong person, right? Because it is something that people scratch their head about. They're like, well, how, why does it have droughts? but also these extreme, you know, water weather events. You know, it seems crazy that these two things can exist at the same time. And I myself went digging for a very clear, concise answer for everybody, for for this at least. And I looked towards Daniel Swain, who is a climate scientist and runs the Weather West website. You love those weather Twitter accounts. I love it. I love it. And... He has some excellent resources on his site where he points people to some kind of like websites that try to debunk climate myths and go into detail. And one of the most concise ones I found was at a site that he recommended. And we'll go ahead and have a link to it in our show notes. But it mentions how global warming affects weather patterns in three very simple little bullets. It says that because there are rising temperatures... It means more things evaporate and dry out more, right? So because it's hotter, soil gets drier, plants get drier, water, water bodies get drier, and that can increase the intensity and frequency of droughts. Well, that makes sense, right? Heat does that. But the other important point is that because the atmosphere itself is warmer, 
it can hold more water. Now we know this, right? It's more humid when it's hotter. Hotter temperatures mean more humidity because when the air is hotter, it can hold more water vapor. And it's been estimated that the atmosphere now holds about 4% more water than it did just 40 years ago. Now that's a lot when you think about the whole globe and how much water is up there in the atmosphere. That means 4%, you know, more clouds, more possibility for storms, more possibility for rain from those storms. And then the other thing is because the t- the atmosphere and the system is hotter, you have hotter sea surface temperatures, right? Of course, the the water in the ocean is going to be hotter too, and that affects the ocean currents. And that can change which direction the wind is blowing, how frequently the wind is blowing, whether you have, whether that wind carries storms or whether it carries drought, all those things can be affected by that. That's quite the science lesson. Yes. All right, let's move on to the next question here. (laughs) This will be the last question. And this is about FEMA itself. And this is actually a question where he's asking the right person. Let's take a listen. Because if climate change is going to continue and if these weather extremes, as they're called, are going to get worse, is FEMA, as it now exists, as the as the agency that you run, is it equipped to deal with a growing problem? The focus that I really want to help FEMA move towards is focusing on reducing the impacts that we're seeing from these. We will continue to respond to these threats and these uh, events as they happen, but we have to start investing in reducing the impacts that we're seeing from these. Uh, That's why this year uh, President Biden has authorized close to $5 billion to invest in hazard mitigation to start reducing the impacts that we're seeing from this increased number of disastrous events. So this is a really good question, as I mentioned. I'm a little disappointed that Chris Wallace didn't bring any facts or figures to it or any background to it. FEMA is an interesting agency because Congress has to kind of authorize its budget and they provide like more funding. It kind of survives on additional funding as disasters kind of happen. So it's a very kind of like ad hoc funding model and one that is very vulnerable to the whims of Congress and whoever happens to be in Congress at the time, which might not be the best structure going forwards if we keep having more and more disasters. It would have been nice to have a little bit of that outlined. Uh, I'm also a little disappointed in Chris Wall's answer here because it's very technical, right? She's talking about like hazard mitigation and it's, what does that mean? How is that different from the infrastructure plan? What do you mean by that? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm even looking at the Biden administration fact sheet in front of me now on this hazard mitigation, and it says, well, there's a billion dollars in funding for the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program for fiscal year 2021. It helps vulnerable communities, vulnerable to natural hazards. It's like, can you just explain what you're doing? Are you building levees? Are you repaving roads like what are you doing i think the thing that is really challenging is that depending where you are the mitigations can vary so widely right right but what i want to understand is like how is this any different from the infrastructure bill right like how do you decide well this is a hazard that is vulnerable to emergency and this is a hazard that isn't right I mean, the New York City subway was flooded like crazy. I doubt that someone would expect FEMA to invest billions fixing the New York City subway. 
but someone should, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what sounds like these conversations focus on is the federal response, the federal prioritization of preparing for climate disasters. And I think what is challenging about climate change conversations is that there's so many, specifically climate change mitigations, there's so many different angles. There's the role of government. There's the role of local government. There's the role of, you know, employers and institutions. There's the average consumer as well. And it almost seems like we never really talk about it as like a multifacet approach that everybody has to be learning and adapting and open to those, to, to these new models. And I just remember being at a conference here in California and they were talking about this was probably four years ago and how more severe the wildfires have been mm-hmm. and they were looking at examples like in florida and in the south about how people receive communications about warnings about hurricanes and their example was when there's a hurricane in florida people know the difference between a one two three four five hurricane people know when they need to board up their windows people know like go get water or like you need to like and it was so weird to be in california hearing about like florida's doing something right but there was something about people here in california are very it's hard to get up to date emergency information that is accurate in your own language in certain parts of the state and even if you get the information you don't necessarily know what to do and so that's just like one tiny example right but that's like an effect of like an average person getting information from their local and state governments and what is the federal support in making sure like those places have the infrastructure set up to be safe in climate change disasters. And so, so much of the conversation has been about infrastructure, but it seems like we should be open and like receptive to a much more nuanced and broader conversation. Absolutely. I mean, you when you started talking, it made me realize, you know, none of this conversation talked about how to reduce the chance of climate change and these emergencies happening. It's like people have become, they've kind of given up on the idea of mitigate, mitigating climate change. And it's all about like dealing with the hazards and living with it. Right. But there are still things that we can do to reduce right. the chance yeah. of our country warming to the extent that it is. And that's nowhere in these conversations. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It, it, I think it's, And and there was a few conversations about this on the shows that I was on, kind of like what I mentioned at the top of the show with Phil Murphy. But I don't know if anybody's like making it tangible enough to make people realize that this is a priority for like not just Florida and Louisiana. It's a priority in New York and New Jersey and Oregon and Utah. Like that it's it's not something that people have to deal with over there. It's just like we all have our versions of how of what we need to deal with. And I think that's something that we're just, it still seems too abstract for how real and dire the situation is. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, they are making some efforts to connect the dots, as we heard at the beginning of Fox News Sunday, where they're trying to connect fires and right, what happened yeah. with Ida. So that's, that's important. But there definitely needs to be more sophistication there. And it's going to be a learning process and people, but I think like, as news consumers, we need to see it in a lot of different ways to kind of make that connection in our own brains 
it just seems like an issue that people are so it's so easy to focus on the flood last week than like you know the 30-year plan to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels right and maybe that we can talk about that when it's like in the form of some piece of legislation or proposal that was just like signed when it feels tangible, but it's hard for people to look forwards and see those things in a tangible way. And that's where setting the agenda as a Sunday show is important to help people to see these things, even when they're not the most obvious, right? They're not as obvious as a video of a waterfall in the New York City subway, right? But from a from the perspective of like a public good or an issue that the public should be caring about, if you're setting an agenda on a show and you say your focus is serving the public, how can you not present this issue in that way? All right, Naomi. Well, that's it. Good for Fox News and these other shows for at least talking about it. Hopefully they will start booking climate scientists, especially since they have a lot of questions for climate scientists, but at least the conversation's there. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. Brendan, you said you had a really good one this week. Uh, I, it's a good one. It's, it's a hard one. This is from the conversation on Meet the Press that Chuck Todd had. Now, I do want to give a shout out to Meet the Press. They had a really interesting conversation with two governors talking about polarization. One was a Democrat. One was a Republican. One was a Democrat in a state with a Republican legislature, the other a Republican in a state with a Democratic legislature. And we're going to hear from the Democrat. This is Governor Andy Bashir. He is the governor of Kentucky. And take a listen to, I think you'll pick up immediately what the dialogue challenge is that he has for all of us. We're, we are well past, I think, all across uh, America. Uh, the, the populations that are going to listen to a government official and take the vaccine because of it. We're, we're probably past uh, even the point where a local official, um, a pastor or others, where I think we're at is where people are going to have to break that Thanksgiving dinner rule. They're going to have to call or go see that person they love and care about that is unvaccinated. And they're going to have to put their relationship with that person on the line because they've yeah. never been at greater risk. And I think it's that type of caring and the person who is willing to do that and to make that sacrifice that will finally get through to those that are not vaccinated. Now, that's what we're seeing here in Kentucky, and we need all Americans to do it. Yes, you might lose a friend because of that conversation, right. but that friend might lose their life if they don't get vaccinated. I think this is such an important directive here by the governor and is bold and risky and probably worth it in a lot of situations and i think it's beyond <laughs> overdue for people to question the safety of be maintaining friendships or relationships with people who choose not to get vaccinated and having that conversation about putting that relationship in jeopardy it's so hard it's so hard you know because you don't want that right you don't want to break your relationships over over, you know, any issue, right? Especially if it's a positive, it's a good relationship. But at the same time, how do you get through to these people? Is this really the only way to do it? Or is this the last way to do it? Or is there more that you can do? Will you wish if something happens that you had done more, right? 
That is a very serious but very important challenge from Governor Andy Bashir, underscoring how important dialogue can be in so many ways. Absolutely. If you have any thoughts about that dialogue challenge or any of our topics, which we each had very thorough (laughs) 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 reflections on, you are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can find me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore. You can follow me at BeastIdle and you can follow the show at PolylogCast. Thanks, everyone. And thank you to those who have taken time to rate the show. I know we often ask people to do that now, but today we are just going to thank those who took the time to do it. So thank you so much for doing that. It really means a lot to us. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Sunday. And have a great Labor Day. Thank you, unions. Bye. Bye.